I have um, been rather fascinated, I don't know if you have, as you've been keeping up with the news um, regarding Queen Elizabeth II's uh, death, and it's been fascinating to watch all the, uh, the history that's behind it, um, to see all the, uh, the ceremony, the garb that's being uh, worn, all the um, various protocols of the royal family, um, you know, seeing the, the proclamation of the, the new king of England, uh, King Charles III. And I, I've really found all of that fascinating, and it's really made me interested in wanting to read more about English history. And, and one of the things that I find so fascinating about it is it, it, um, it really tethers the Great Britain and England and all those countries there more to its history, uh, what the original government was like under the monarch, and then it became a, a kind of a constitutional monarchy. You know, some of the things that I'm, I'm seeing on the news I didn't realize. Um, obviously, most of it's protocol, most of it's ceremonial. There's no real, um, real power kind of invested in the, the monarchy in Britain. But, for instance, that parliament can only meet when the, the queen, Elizabeth II, and now King Charles III, when they make a declaration that they can meet. And, of course, they will, before Parliament meets, they will make this speech about how the, the majesty is, is requesting the lords and the, uh, the members of Parliament to meet. But what, what he's reading from is actually from the government. It's, it's from the, the Parliament or from the Prime Minister itself. It's not something that he comes up with. But nevertheless, it, it's interesting because it goes all the way back to the history of England, to their government, to you know, there's a line of secession that goes so far uh, back. And even when we think about it in our own country, when we're having debates about the government and about the uh, you know, presidential powers and the Supreme Court and the, the House of Representatives and Senate, we usually think about, well, how was it that the original framers of this country or the Declaration of Independence, how was it that the signers intended this to function? We go back to the history getting closer to the origins of it. And so that's what we're going to find happening here in Romans chapter 4 as we begin in verse 1. As Paul is going to make this case that the concept of justification by faith is not something new. It goes all the way back into the history of God's people beginning with their father Abraham. And so when we ended with chapter 3, there was a series of rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul asked. And these are questions that the answer is already should be known. But here in chapter 4, he's actually going to develop more the answer to these questions about these aspects that we read in, like in verse 27, where it says, where is the boasting then? Is it is excluded? By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. And then if you look in verse 29, it says, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? And then in verse 31, Do then we make void the law through faith? And so he's going to unpack the answers to these questions in chapter 4. And he begins by doing so, reaching far back into the history of God's people. Going back. 4,000 years or, or two, 3,000 years to Abraham and saying that it has always been 
that justification comes by faith alone, not faith plus works. And so let's look at God's word together and see what we learn from our father Abraham. And I, I make that, that statement to be intentional. What do we learn from our father Abraham? He is the father of us all in faith, not just the father of the Jews, those who are ethnically Jew, but he is the father of all of us who have trusted in Christ for our justification by faith. So let's look at God's word together. Beginning in verse 1, here's what the word of our God says. It says, what then shall we say? That Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast about, but not before God. Or he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who know who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which are our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at his word. Father, we pray that you will speak to us through your word today. May you confront us with the truth that our justification is by grace through faith alone, that there is nothing that we can do to achieve or to work our own righteousness, that it's only by your grace, through our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you make us righteous in your Son, Jesus. And so, Father, help us to listen, help us to receive your word with meekness, which is able to save our souls. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So as we begin looking at this text, there's at least two things I want us to notice um, from this section. The first thing is from verses 1 through 8 is that it's faith, not works, that leads to justification. Faith, not works, leads to justification. The previous section stated that all boasting in oneself is excluded because faith, rather than works, is the only basis for our justification. And Paul uses Abraham for his model in verses 1 through 2. In verse 1, 
Paul essentially asks how the points of chapter 3 and verses 27 through 31 can be demonstrated in the life of Abraham. Abraham found that justification is by faith and by faith alone. And so for Paul, there is no boasting in our salvation because there is nothing that we do to achieve or to work or to bring about our salvation. Our boasting is only in God. Because the work of salvation, the work of changing us from sinners to righteousness comes from God and God alone. And there is nothing that we do where we can glory in ourselves, that we can rejoice in ourselves, or that we can boast in ourselves. All of our rejoicing, all of our glory, all of our praising goes to God because it is God and God alone who saves us. This is not a a novel concept. Now, it galvanizes the ears of his hearers. Now, this is a a mixed congregation full of both Jews and Gentiles. And there are Jews that have been taught by their tradition, not by the text of Scripture, but they've been taught by their tradition that they must perform ritual acts, that this credits righteousness to themselves by these works that they do, by these, uh, these aspects that they participate in in their spiritual life. And so Paul is taking them back to the Bible and telling them that this has never been the case. That you have gotten off track, that you have been misguided, that you have added something to what the Scriptures actually said. Now, there's a lot of places that Paul could have turned to to make this case, but he does so in two specific texts. The first is Genesis chapter 15, and the second is um, Psalm Psalm 32. And he uses Genesis chapter 15 going all the way back to the origin and the history of the Jewish people to their father, Abraham. And so if the Jewish people thought that any person had ground for boasting, it would be Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, and he was held in the highest esteem. In fact, if you remember that Jesus told a parable about a rich man and then a poor man by the name of Lazarus. And then when they both died, where do we find Lazarus? In the bosom of Abraham. And so for the, Jew- the Jewish people, that was a sign of great acceptance and great honor that, they, that this man was received into the bosom of Abraham. So they held Abraham to the highest uh, esteem possible. They uh, considered him to be on the Mount Rushmore of the Jewish faith and of the Jewish nation. And if, if anybody might have raised just a tad bit above Abraham, it was Moses. But here he goes to the very beginning, to the history of God's people, and he shows that Abraham was justified apart from works, and he was justified only by faith. In fact, Abraham's life, it actually epitomizes obedience. He left the land of Ur to follow God. He was willing to give up his only son to God. God had made this promise to Abraham that out of his, out of his seed, out of his offspring, that he was going to make a great nation. And all Abraham had was this one son, this one son. And here Abraham showed his obedience and his faithfulness to God by his willingness to give him up. Yet with all this, Even Abraham 
had no ground for boasting. His justification was not by works, but by faith alone and God alone. So if Abraham could not achieve righteousness before God on the basis of his works, what makes us think that we can? And so Paul makes the case for Abraham's righteousness before God by faith alone by asking his audience to turn in their Bibles to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. That's what we see in uh, the, the quotation comes from uh, uh, in Rome, Romans 4 and verse 3. That's the quotation comes directly out of Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis 15, Abraham is given a vision by God in which he is promised an heir through whom he will have as many children as the stars. And so Abraham is asking, Where, where's my heir going to come from? And he's an old man by this time, so he, he has no reason to believe that he can have children. And not only is he an old man at this time, but his wife Sarah is barren. She cannot have children. And so when God makes this promise to Abraham, he takes him outside and he tells him to lift up his eyes and look at all the stars in the sky. And he said, one of these days, your descendants will number like these stars. Abraham's an old man. He has no son of his own. His wife is barren. God makes this promise to him. And then we find that the Bible tells us that Abraham believed God. He believed the Lord. And this resulted not only in righteousness, but in the Abrahamic covenant. The promise that God made to Abraham that through his lineage, through his seed, through his offspring, through his people, that all the nations will be blessed. And what is important for Paul's argument is that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's what we see in verse 3. And this word accounted is used 11 times in this chapter. And in this context, it has the meaning of crediting someone's account. It may actually have the idea of God as the divine bookkeeper. Abraham's account is zero. There is nothing as far as righteousness. He has no righteousness. In fact, we might even go as far as to think or to say is that his account in regards to righteousness is actually running in the red. There's a deficit. And the reason there is a deficit is because there is sin. And this sin is compiling upon one upon another. And it's, it's just snowballing to this massive debt that Abraham needs to pay. Now, not only does Abraham have, didn't have any righteousness, not only was he running in a deficit, but you and I have no righteousness at all. We are full of sin, thinking evil thoughts in our mind, in our heart, heart and committing them in our bodies. But God takes that account in the red regarding righteousness, and he credits it with the very righteousness of God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is really important for us to embrace, for us to comprehend. And we talked about this in Romans chapter 3, but that was several months ago. But one of the things that we need to understand is that in order for us to be in a relationship with God, that we have to be righteous. And when I say righteous, I don't mean just a little bit of righteous. I mean, we have to have perfect righteous. That's the concept of justification. When we are justified, that means that God has made us righteous. 
God is a holy and a righteous God, and he can only have a relationship with people who are holy and righteous, fully holy and righteous. And so that causes quite the predicament for us, doesn't it? Because we have no righteousness, and more than that, that we are full of sin. Evil thoughts that we do all the time, consistently. That's what our, our life is full of. In fact, if we go back and we look at Romans chapter 3, and it says in verse 10, it gives this description of who we are. It says, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. And then it goes on from that, that verse, and it begins to list the the evil deeds that we as humanity participates in. But what God does through his son Jesus Christ, that when we trust in him, when we are graced with faith to respond to the gospel call of Jesus Christ, he takes our our account that's running in the red of sin and he credits it with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Perfect and full righteousness. Jesus came on this earth to live a perfect life. And in his life, he lived absolutely, unequivocally, with full obedience before his Father. And the life that he lived now is applied to our account. And so one of these days when we stand before the judgment seat of God and he asks us, why should I let you enter into my kingdom? We, we cannot account what we have done We only point to what Jesus Christ has done for us and how his righteousness is credited to our account. So it's the very righteousness of God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so now the other thing that we need to think about in this this text is as it relates to Abraham. It says Abraham, righteousness was credited to his account. So how does that actually even happen if Abraham lived before the time of the Lord Jesus Christ before his life and before his death. But even though Abraham lived before the coming of the Lord Jesus, according to chapter 3 of verse 25, the atonement of Jesus encompasses even the sins of those previously committed. Now in verses 4 through 5, they restate the essence of verses 2 through 3 to show the incompatibility between faith and works. Keeping with the financial theme from verse 3, there are two ways money can be accredited to one's account, either by wages earned or you work for them, or a gift. And when we think about a gift here in this context, we're thinking about something that is unmerited, something that is free, that's freely given. Now, oftentimes, when we think, when we use the word gift in our context, when we give someone a gift, Let's just be quite honestly that there's not always uh, is there pure motives for it, or there's not any strings attached to it. You know, we we give gifts out of all kinds of different motivations for for things, uh, whether it has to do with the relationship that we have with that person, or maybe we're giving the, a gift uh, like I constantly do is buy gifts when I make Brandy mad at me. So I I, I don't give it freely or, or unmerited. It's there's a reason for it. I, I want to live in peace in my own home. Um, but when it comes to God and him giving the gift, it is absolutely free. It is unmerited. It, God is a God who is a God of grace, 
A God who gives. And there's nothing that you and I can do that can add to God. And so when we think about the way this word is used here in this text, especially in verse 4, it says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And in verse 5, But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So the argument that Paul is making here in this text is that working is the result of one's doing, but believing fully relies on another. If you work and receive a wage, then it is something that is yours. However, if we receive a gift from a person, then we receive something that inherently does not belong to us. So the point that Paul is making here, that if you're working for this, then you deserve this. But he's going to make the argument later on in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 that what the only thing that you can work for is death. The wages of sin is death. So if you want to try to work or try to earn, the only thing you're going to work for, you're going to earn, is death and your own judgment. But what God does is he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve, and that's life. So for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now, this this is important uh, to understand for justification by faith. In verse 5, God through Christ justifies the ungodly. Ungodly was inherent in Abraham and is inherent in all people, as we see back in verse 23 of chapter 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Righteousness, on the other hand, is not inherent in people. It is something outside of us. It's something alien to us. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus is imputed. It's gifted by God's grace alone. And this understanding of righteousness as a gift fits with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verses 1 through 6. When Abraham could not have a child because of his old age, and due to the fact that his wife was barren, God promised him that he would be a father of a great nation. Abraham was not in a position to accomplish this promise on his own strength. He trusted that God could accomplish this promise. And Abraham's faith honored God because he believed that God could do the impossible by making his offspring as numerous as the star. By putting his faith in God's promise, he showed that righteous lies in believing Instead of working, righteous, righteous relies on giving yourselves over to God and God alone, recognizing that the state that you're in, as far as being ungodly and being in sin, that in that state, it is impossible for you to rise out of that. You cannot. Just as Abraham could not change his posterity, just as he could not change the fact that his wife was barren. In fact, in the scripture, being barren was almost equivalent to being dead. To, for a, a woman who was considered barren to give, uh, to all of a sudden began uh, to become pregnant was equivalent to the dead being raised. That was the impossibility of the task that was presented before Abraham. You're going to have a, a, a nation that's going to come out of you. And yet Abraham's an old man, can't have children anymore. And more specifically, his wife could not either. And yet, he believed God to do what he could not do. 
So in the same sense, we believe in God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace to save us because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot change ourselves. Only God, by his grace, through his son Jesus Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit can change us. Now, I think it's important for us to return and think more deeply about what it means that God justifies the ungodly. When we read this in verse 5, it is almost jolting and even wrong. Now, in fact, it doesn't even appear to, to make any sense. Shouldn't it be the godly are justified? But that's not how it reads, does it? It says that the ungodly are justified, as we look there in verse 5. He justifies the ungodly. I want you to listen to this quote that I pulled from a, a writer by the name of John Stott about God justifying the ungodly. And he asked this question. How can the righteous God act unrighteously and so overthrow the moral order, turning it upside down? He's asking this question about this verse, about God justifying the ungodly. How can it be so? It is unbelievable. Or rather, it would be if it were not for the cross of Christ. Without the cross, the justification of the ungodly would be unjustified and moral and therefore impossible. The only reason God justifies the ungodly is that the, the, uh, the, the only reason that God justifies the ungodly is that he is able through his shed blood and through his sacrificial death for us as sinners. It is only on this basis that God can justify the ungodly. On the basis of faith in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, on behalf of the ungodly, they can be right with God and be justified freely by his grace. And maybe to say it more poetically as we learn in the words of the song, it is well with my soul, that our sins, our ungodliness, is nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. In fact, I love the addition of it. It's not that our sins are just nailed to the cross. He says, but not in part, but the whole. The whole of our sins are nailed to the cross. And as a consequence, we praise God for that. Now, to make his case stronger that faith not works justified, Paul pivots to another Old Testament text, Psalm 32, authored by David to make his case. So Abraham is a stalwart in the history of Israel. David was a significant stalwart as well. He was the king that everybody wanted to get back to. Let's bring King David back. Somebody, please, Get King David. In fact, all of the kings were judged whether they walked in the ways of their father, King David. So he uses King David to make his case about justification by faith alone. And so the emphasis on this is on the blessed state of those who come to God without works. The point is clear. Righteousness cannot be achieved. No matter what we do, whether religious, moral, ethical, or spiritual, nothing can earn justification. Nothing can make us righteous. The connection between Genesis 15 and Psalm 32 is the word that is translated accounted in verse 3, and in my translation, it translated as impute in verse 8. They are the same word with the same meaning in the language of the Bible. In fact, most translate the word in verse 8 as charge or count or account. Now, there are three observations to note 
about verses 6 through 8. First, God and God alone is the one who credits righteousness to one's account. Second, righteousness is defined in terms of forgiveness. Sometimes when we think about the word righteous, God makes us righteous. It almost appears like it's a clinical term, that there's this kind of this coldness to it. But when we are declared righteous, when we are made righteous, we are forgiven. We are forgiven of our sins. And the idea of forgiveness is more relational. It shows us that God is not just a God who just is, is far from us and he just, from a distance, he declares us righteous, but how God enters into our sphere and he forgives us of our sins. And the reason that forgiveness is a more personal aspect is because we are forgiven for what we have committed against God. God who is the one who has been unjustly sinned against. We are the ones that need to ask God for forgiveness, but by His grace through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, that when we put our trust in Him, God forgives us of our sins. And He doesn't just forgive us of our sins and hold a grudge against us. He truly forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us from all of our sins. So we see in verse 7, that we are forgiven. Our sins are covered. They are no more. So the second aspect that we find is that righteousness is defined in terms of forgiveness, which is more personal and relation. And third, the word blessing speaks to the gracious nature of justification. Those who have experienced the forgiveness of sin are conscious of God's gracious, undeserved unmitigated blessing on one's life. And Paul understood the state of blessedness because he was forgiven of his sins. And what that meant for Paul and what it means for all of us that no matter where we are in our journey of life, whether we're on the mountain, whether we're on the valley, whether there's good things that are happening, whether we're enduring suffering, that we are still blessed. Because we have been forgiven by God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, in the midst of a cold, dark prison cell, being mistreated, being beaten, can say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice because he is blessed. And the last part of this, and this is going to go a little bit quick, more quickly for those of you that are looking at your watch. So the first part in verses 1 through 8, justified by faith, not works. The second part that we see in verses 9 through 12 as it relates to the theme of Abraham is that it's faith, not ethnic identity that makes us the people of God. Faith, not ethnic identity that makes us the people of God. Now begin verse 9. Paul clearly illustrates the point of righteous by faith, not works. Yet in doing so, he makes a larger point. Abraham is not the father of the Jews only. He is the father of all God's people by faith. Combining Genesis 15 and Psalm 32, Paul advocates that Abraham was accounted for, uh, that Abraham was accounted for blessedness and righteousness prior to circumcision. This ritual act, which signified the seal of the promise, did not result in righteousness. It was his faith while he was uncircumcised that resulted in righteousness. Three times in this text, in verses 9 through 12, it emphasizes 
that Abraham was in an uncircumcised state when God declared him righteous. Before the ritual act, Abraham was equivalent to a Gentile without the law. God could not have accounted righteous to Abraham because he had obeyed the law and performed the ritual act. There was no law to obey or no ritual act in the Genesis 15 account. In fact, this ritual act doesn't occur until Genesis chapter 17. When God first calls Abraham to leave Ur, he was 74 years old. When Abraham is circumcised, he is 99. That means that for many years, Abraham is righteous by faith before the law and the ritual act. So it would not be too much for me to say that for 25 years, Abraham did not have this ritual act on his body. So for 25 years, he was righteous, not because of the law or because of works or because of deeds. He was righteous because he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Not only does the Genesis sequence reveal righteous before the works of the law, but it also reveals that before Abraham was the father of the ethnic Jews, he was the father of all God's people without distinction. That's an emphasis that we see here in this text. If you go and look at um, verse 11, it says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. Why? So there's a purpose to this. right? It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that Abraham believed in God. It was accounted to him as righteous before this ritual act occurred. So what we find here in verse 11 is called a purpose clause. If you'll, if you'll notice there that all this, that he had faith while still uncircumcised for the purpose that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also. So he is the father of all God's people. So it's faith, not the ritual act that makes one, makes Abraham one's father. It's faith, not ethnic identity that makes Abraham one's father. And this is an important argument that Paul makes in regard to the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. The ethnic Jews do not have an exclusive right to Abraham as their father. He belongs to all God's people by faith. This section answers the question of chapter 3 and verse 29, along with questions that will be asked in the chapters that will follow, more specifically in chapter 9 and 11. The question is, who is God's people? In fact... If you read in in verse 1 or verse 11, it tells us who God's people is. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, it's actually framed in such a way that it's not an accident or it's not a coincidence that Abraham was justified by faith alone. He was justified by faith alone before the ritual act of circumcision so that he might be the father of all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham as a father of all people who believe is consistent with the promise God made to him when he called him out of the land of Ur. This is what God told him. He says, and in you, all the nations will be blessed. So there is an evangelistic and missionary thrust that should not be overlooked. Paul is often considered an apostle to the Gentiles. 
At the beginning of Romans, it states that I am a debtor to both the Greek and the barbarian, not to the Jews exclusively. He says, I'm a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians. And essentially saying, I'm a debtor to all people. And then he goes on and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the, it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So it is our prerogative and mandate as a church to proclaim the gospel to all people. To call people to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then those who trust in the Lord Jesus are justified freely. The very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is credited to their account. And they have Abraham as their father too. Doesn't matter where they're from. Doesn't matter what their skin color looks for, looks like. That if they place their faith in Jesus Christ and they are justified freely by his grace, then they can claim Abraham is their father. And so all of us this morning, if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we've been saved by his grace, we have Abraham as our father. But more importantly, through Jesus Christ, we have God as our father. Let's pray together.